This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Global Nashville with Carl Dean. I'm Patrick Ryan. Today, former Nashville Mayor Carl Dean will be talking with John Scanapieco about China-U.S. relations. John is an attorney and leads the global business team at Baker Donaldson in Nashville. John has over 20 years' experience working with businesses in China and with Chinese businesses working in America. On the day we sat down to talk about U.S.-China commercial relations, we're waiting to hear about progress in talks between Washington and Beijing to end a now 15-month bitter trade war. So how did we get here? It starts with the 2016 presidential campaign and candidate Trump's promise to do something about China's unfair trade practices. From the campaign trail, he said China's entrance into the World Trade Organization opened the door to what he called the greatest job theft in history. In 2017, as president, Mr. Trump ordered a review of the U.S. trade deficit and tighter tariff enforcement as well. In his first meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, he agreed to a 100-day plan for trade talks. When those talks failed to produce results, reducing the U.S. trade deficit, Trump ordered a probe into alleged Chinese intellectual property theft, the first direct trade action against China. By early 2018, the trade war was on. In the months to come, there would be U.S. tariffs on all manner of goods, at all manner of tariff rates, and up to hundreds of billions of dollars in trade. China kept pace, retaliating with tariffs, some targeted to hurt politically sensitive economic sectors like soybeans and other U.S. agriculture. In September 2019, the two sides met for two days of what turned out to be a productive session. Talks continue, but everyone is waiting for a resolution to a trade dispute that has not only shaken U.S.-China business ties, but has put the brakes on much of global economic progress. So today we're talking with John Scanapieco, an authority on U.S.-China commercial ties, about the trade war. As we start off, Carl will talk with John about how he came to be a Chinese specialist and what sparked his interest in international issues. And now, Carl Dean and Global Nashville. Great. Thank you, Pat, and thank you, John, for being here. Um, John, you know, one of the things that the Tennessee World Affairs Council does is has um, career um, fairs and opportunities for people to learn about um, uh, careers in foreign relations or in, uh, in the global markets. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, being in world business? Sure. Uh, so when um, I was in law school, I just assumed if you wanted to do global business, you had to go to Harvard or Georgetown or someplace like that. And what I found once I started practicing is that, and this goes back maybe 25 years, at that time, I think Tennessee had about 13 or 1,400 companies in Middle Tennessee that were doing cross-border business. And there was no one really serving uh, that community. And so I had the opportunity to interact with some lawyers from other countries, and I asked them how they handled their U.S. work, and they told me that, well, you know, they try to find different lawyers in different states, but when I really realized what they were doing, 
it was a lot of it had to do with federal type work. I said, well, I can do that for you in Nashville. And I started doing it. And then I realized, well, if I'm doing that for these lawyers from Germany and the UK and Italy, why can't they do that for me? And so I uh, started developing a kind of a global network of lawyers and accountants and other professionals and started working with local companies that may have had cross-border needs. I'm trying to sell a product or I have a contract or a dispute. And then I would interact with uh, those lawyers in, in the other markets and the client and eventually just learned uh, what was going on from a cross-border business perspective. And now we've got a team of, you know, over 85 lawyers that, uh, you know, do that uh, work. So it, as I try to tell uh, students, you know, it's best if you can speak a language. Um, it's best if you have some kind of experience living abroad, maybe working abroad, or even uh, attending school abroad. But those types of experiences, I think, are very uh, um, helpful. And then finding the right uh, environment where that work is being done, you know, at, at the law firm or, or in a business. Did you, when you were in high school and college, was international law, international business your area of interest? Uh, so I was very fortunate in that my father started a company, very small, but eventually grew it to where they were doing business in 47 countries around the world. And my father was first generation Italian, born here in the United States. And so he was of the kind of school of thought when he would entertain a maybe a customer or distributor, he wouldn't take them out to a restaurant, he would take them to our house. And so as a teenager, I saw people from literally all over the world come through our house and you would listen to them talk about, you know, where they were from and their families and things that they did and the holidays they celebrated and all those things. And so I was always very interested in it. But like I said, I thought uh, to do that work, you had to either go to a certain school or work in a certain community like Washington, D.C. or New York. But what I've come to realize is that, that global business is going on all around us, I don't care where you are in the United States, uh, pretty much everybody is engaged in the global marketplace. And so there's just opportunities really all over. Um, and ten Tennessee has a particularly strong uh, ties to international business and, um, you know, in, with Japan, China, Great Britain. You have a particular interest in China. And how did that evolve? So it, you're gonna, it's kind of a funny story. So uh, probably about 20 years or so ago, um, you know, China was becoming, you know, the it thing. Like if you were going to do something globally, you had to be in China. And I wanted to, you know, participate in that. And so over the course of a couple of years, we had some visiting professors maybe that would work at Vanderbilt from China, and I would talk to them and get involved with them. And then ultimately, my law firm hired a woman who uh, both had a Chinese law degree as well as a U.S. law degree, and they were trying to figure out what we should do, where she should go within our law firm. And I said, well, I'll, she can work with me. And so uh, the two of us went to China, uh, not knowing a soul. <laughs> And we slowly but surely, you know, built a practice. But China's always been of interest to me because it is literally the energy in that country um, is just amazing. I mean, there's a deal to be done around every corner. I'm not saying you'd want to do them all, but there is definitely something to be done. And that's how I got involved. And over time, like I said, over the last 20 plus years, uh, I've developed a, a 
a uh, workflow where I represent U.S. companies who either want to do business in China, are doing business in China, or maybe have a dispute or uh, like a contract dispute or an intellectual property dispute. Um, so I handle that, and we also create opportunities for companies and healthcare and other areas, um, and help that facilitate those uh, deals. And then at the same time, we represent Chinese companies who who want to do business in the United States. And in some cases, we actually represent Chinese companies in other parts of the world, uh, you know, as well. Do you um, have to travel extensively for your work? Yeah. So I mean, it, it depends. Uh, I'm trying. I think at my the most I travel in a course of a year is probably about six months, which is a lot. And I have four kids and, 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 and a loving wife, and I'm trying desperately to uh, uh, maybe not travel as much, but it is what I do uh, for a living, and I think it's so important to actually go and meet face-to-face with people. I'm maybe of that generation uh, where, you know, video conferences are great, but actually uh, going um, is, uh, is really important. And that's also where we or how we develop opportunities and work is, is by going in-country to where the potential clients are or the potential deals are, are, are based. Right. Well, what is the, um, what is the importance of the of business relations with China to the United States? I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, China and the U.S. are the two world's largest economies. Um, I know uh, China gets a lot of criticism for the significant trade deficit that we have. But if you really look at a lot of the input imports, excuse me, that come from China to the U.S., probably about half of them have U.S. inputs you know, in those those imported products. Um, and so it really serves a pretty important market for U.S. components to go to China, as well as for us. I mean, if you really look at a lot of, uh, you know, where we shop and the products we buy, you know, they, they come from China. So we've been able to keep uh, some of the cost of the goods that we, we buy in our everyday life down at a pretty reasonable level. Um, and it supports a tremendous number of jobs here in China, uh, here in the U.S. So, you know, that relationship is it's very complicated. So it's not like the old U.S.-USSR, you know, right? It was more of an ideological issue, and we didn't do any trade with each other, so nothing. Here, we are really dependent upon each other for a lot of the cross-border trade that supports our both of our economies in a large, large number of uh, jobs. And what do we, uh, what do Americans want from China in terms of goods? I mean, if you really look at what we import, it's a lot of uh, consumer electronic products. Uh, we also Im- import uh, a lot of intermediate and capital goods, so th- uh, things that are either used in the manufacture of a finished product or the actual maybe machinery that is used to make the products. We import a lot of those. And again, like I said, a lot of consumer-related products, so apparel, uh, consumer electronics like TVs and, and, and DVD players and computers and things like that. Plastic products. Say it again. A lot of plastic products. Yep, a lot of plastic products. I mean, just a lot of things that we use every day. I mean, if you go to a Walmart or even a tractor supply, Dollar General, I mean, a lot of those products come from, uh, you know, China. Um, and it's been a, it, it's allowed us in the United States 
to not necessarily manufacture what I'll call the on the low end of manufacturing. It has allowed us to outsource those to other countries, whether it's China or Mexico or other places, which then helps raise the standard of living abroad. And at the same time, it's allowed us to move up that manufacturing food chain. So the type of work we're doing is more of the advanced manufacturing where there's more, I'll say, value, that there's, there's more profit to be made. So it actually has allowed us to raise the standard of living in our own country by uh, uh, allowing workers. And again, this is this is a general statement. So, I mean, obviously there are pockets where this has not occurred, where we've been allowed to raise wages and the standard of living because we're able to do now this more advanced manufacturing. And and what what do they want from us? So what they want from us is uh, a marketplace to sell their products. Uh, China is woefully under-resourced, and it needs uh, foreign capital in order to go out into the marketplace to buy what we would consider to be just run-of-the-mill commodities, oil, gas, food, uh, things like that, that they just cannot produce uh, in uh, China. And so for us, we serve a very important role because we are their largest export market. And so by selling us products, they acquire U.S. dollars that they can then use to acquire the resources that they need to kind of say to keep the lights on. And most of their contracts are denominated in U.S. dollars, whether they're with the United States or other countries. So for us, we serve a very important role for them in providing providing that marketplace by which they can then generate the capital that they need to, like I said, just keep the country running. And so you reading the newspaper any given day, you're reading about the U.S.-China trade wars. What, um, when did this all begin? Is this, how long has this been going on, and, and, and what led us to this point? You know, there's, there has been this tension with the United States and China for many years, and this precedes President Trump. I mean, this is, you'll see instances where uh, probably going back maybe as far as even President Reagan, maybe not that far, but close, uh, where we've had this tension over um, the, the theft of intellectual property, the forced transfer of intellectual property, currency manipulation by maybe China, uh, or th- these allegations that these things are occurring. Um, And, you know, we have tried uh, over many, many years to uh, hopefully through uh, by allowing China into the World Trade Organization and bringing them into the, I'll say, the Western economic order that China would reform its own economy more in the like of, say, the U.S. or other Western economies. And so but China has not done that. And I, and I don't know if it was a miscalculation on the part of prior U.S. administrations or meaning they just missed it, like they missed the signals. But the whole idea on this side was if we, if we allow China into our world, that they will reform their economy more like us. And I think China was looking at it from the perspective of, yes, we want to join the world order, but we want to, we want to keep our side of the world for us, and we'll let you have your side of the world over here. And that tension of maybe we miss we misconstrued each other's intentions, that is what's now causing, I think, this to flare up, where you've got now, um, you've got these issues with, uh, you know, intellectual property theft, a trade deficit, um, you know, job losses, things like that now that have kind of spilled over and there is no easy resolution. And I think that's what's now caused this trade war. And then you have a president who said, hey, these are problems for our economy going forward the next 40, 50 years. 
I'm, I want to do something about it. And he has identified probably about five or six key issues and now is using things like tariffs and other, other means to try to uh, bring China to the table to negotiate a resolution that works for both, both sides. Prior to the imposition of the tariffs last year, was the was it relatively free trade between the United States and China? Yes. Again, I think the thought was, well, we'll negotiate. We'll use the World Trade Organization dispute resolution process. We'll bring some cases, um, you know, to uh, uh, to challenge some of China's activities, and we will hopefully by allowing uh, this free trade between our two countries, that we'll raise the standard of living in China, and because of that, we'll have even more market reforms. Uh, unfortunately, that, again, has not worked out. Uh, I think there were missed opportunities both during both Bush administrations and even President Obama's administration where they could have challenged practices. But again, they were hoping that through this opening up of the economy that that would lead to the reforms necessary to kind of more bring them in line with some of our own uh, expectations. And by us, I mean kind of the Western world uh, expectations. And unfortunately, it just didn't, it just didn't happen again because I think there was just a different goal in mind from the outset with China. It was always about becoming this economic power and really, you know, trying to dominate their hemisphere, so to speak, and leave then us to ourselves over here. Well, you always hear when there are stories about China's uh, economy that they're going to have the largest economy in what, 20, 30 years is basically what most people say now. Yes, I, th I think that that's correct. Um, I think it, the forecast is twenty thirty. Is that something is that like? Well, something? I mean, again, it it just depends. But yes, and that's what I hear. That's what I hear on, on the current trend lines. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, from a U.S. company perspective, I mean, many many companies want to take part of that. If you look at growth trends in the world, most of the growth for the foreseeable future will occur in Asia. And so, you know, to take advantage of that manufacturers and others who sell products and services want to go to Asia. And if you're going to go set up in Asia, why not set up in the most populous or the biggest market, right? And then use that as your hub to then address Asia needs. You know, it's no longer really where we manufacture solely in the United States and then export all over the world. If you look at, for example, the auto manufacturers, uh, the, all the auto OEMs have, have adopted regional manufacturing practices for decades. So they make in the region in which they're going to sell. Right. And, and that's the same thing now, which you have with a lot of U.S. So a lot of U.S. companies want to access that market. Um, and at the same time, China wants to access the uh, U.S. market, not only for, to sell its widgets, but also to access its technology and other. Um... And then let me just ask you, um, before we go to a break, about um, tariffs. So the trade war has begun, and the main tool in this trade war are tariffs. What what are tariffs? So a tariff, the best way to look at a tariff is it's a tax, okay? And it's a tax on uh, goods as they enter through a port. And it is a tax typically imposed on the importer of record. Uh, and so they'll pay up some percentage of, uh, of whatever, you know, on, that, on the value of that product that's being imported. And generally when a country enacts a tariff, then the country who... Is a, is, they then enact their tariffs on their imports. Yeah, so what you'll have is, so for example, let's say there's a, you know, typically our tariffs, the U.S. tariffs averaged about 3% 
you know, across the board. In some cases, obviously, there are none, but over overall, about 3%. So if I was going to import $100 worth of product, and I'm the importer of record here in the United States, I would pay $3 then extra to the government uh, as a tax on my ability to bring that in. Now, when that happens, uh, because you have na- you have economic nationalists in, in all these different countries, right? And so let's say, for example, we impose that tariff on Chinese imports of, you know, uh, of widgets, then the same folks in China will be saying, well, well if they're going to do that to us, we're going to retaliate. Now, they don't retaliate on the same product because they want to retaliate on a product that's actually going to cause some harm or impact to us here in right. the United States. And so they'll impose that tariff on the import of, let's say, Jack Daniels whiskey, which actually has occurred. And so as a result, it impacts then the the folks in China who want to import that whiskey, they have to pay now this extra tax on top of what they were already paying. And so the idea is they will they will buy less. And we're feeling this Tennessee local, you can say bourbon whiskey is being affected, mm-hmm. and then agricultural products. Um, auto, imported autos and auto parts. Um uh, yeah, chemicals, uh, but a lot of ag products, autos, and, and like whiskey and, and other products like that. Okay. Well, we're uh, talking with John Scanapieco uh, here on Global Nashville with Carl Dean. And before we uh, go to a, a break, I'd just like to ask uh, John, uh, TPP, uh, talk a little bit about TPP, what it is, what happened to it, uh, what the consequences have been. So trans, uh, TPP is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it was a multilateral uh, trade agreement uh, that included a lot of the ASEAN countries, uh, and then Canada, Mexico, U.S. ASEAN being the Association of Southeast Asian countries. Nations. Yeah, and, I, and I, I apologize. I cannot remember them all off the top of my head. but uh, and, and Australia, I think. And, Australia, and, and Chile. Others, yeah, yeah, Chile. Yep, along the Pacific Rim and Australia, New Zealand. Or New Zealand opted out, I think. And then the idea was, I mean, again, it wasn't really going to impact the U.S. economy that much. I think the estimates were maybe 1%, 2% GDP, but more importantly, it was for strategic reasons. By bringing all of those countries within the U.S. kind of sphere, economic sphere, the idea would be that you could then create this trading block that was big enough that ultimately China would want to join. And having learned our lessons from WTO, uh, China's accession to WTO, where they provided China the ability to join um, and then provided them with aspirational goals. So yes, we'll let you join, and, and I'm making up the timeline, but five, six, ten years, we want you to achieve certain goals. I think what they could have done is say, okay, here we have this big trading block, and you want to join? That You have to have already achieved those goals. I think we could have addressed that. Unfortunately, President Trump believed that TPP was actually a a poorly negotiated deal. Um, And so I want to say within a day or two of his inauguration, he withdrew us from TPP. Now, I wasn't part of that conversation, but I have to imagine that what they were thinking was, well, if we pull out, then these other countries won't want to go forward. Because really, until the U.S. joined the negotiations of TPP, uh, it went nowhere. But once the U.S. joined, it it gathered some momentum, and other countries came to it, and it really was, was moving along. Um, Japan stepped up, uh, and I think much to everyone's surprise, stepped up and really asserted some leadership and brought that together. And they uh, signed it late last year, and it went into effect. And I, my understanding is 
that it's actually going uh, pretty well. Um, now, if you recall, the U.S. and Japan have just reached a what they'll call like a smaller trade deal on ag agricultural products and some other things. And they borrowed pretty heavily from what was already negotiated with TPP. Unfortunately, right. they didn't get all of what had already been negotiated with TPP, simply because a lot of that, um, a lot of the, um, we'll call it quota, the agricultural quotas, had already been assigned or allocated to, like, Australia through TPP, or Japan had also negotiated a free trade agreement with the EU, and so some of that quota had gone to the EU. And so as a result, there just wasn't enough left and so we actually did worse than had we stayed with TPP. But I think you really could have, had we stayed with TPP, I think it could have been really used uh, as a foil to a lot of China's uh, move in Asia, South China Sea, and bringing some of these countries now under its economic um, wings, so to speak. As I recall, it was more than just an economic yes. uh, plus. It was a strategic plan that would have served in some respects to uh, hedge in China from trading with uh, with our partners and unfortunately fell victim to election year politics. Yes. It this, was getting attacked. Even both even sides. both both parties left and right, really. It yeah. it it got so it it became such a third rail that even uh, Hillary Clinton had to come out and say she was against it. You know, and it's two bags. I think these trade deals get a bad rap. Um, you know, we can always find a community that was maybe impacted by NAFTA or by globalization, but for the most part, these these trade deals have actually significantly benefited the United States. And sometimes you need to do some of these things, as, as you pointed out, Pat, not necessarily because it's going to be a big, you know, we're going to add 8 million jobs, but, but for those uh, strategic uh, um, uh, points. And I think it really would have done a lot to curb a lot of some of the issues now that have arisen with U.S.-China relations from a geopolitical standpoint. Well, John, uh, we're going to uh, take a break. Carl, uh, we'll, we'll be back in uh, just a minute. Uh, we're here at Global Nashville with Carl Dean talking with John Scanapieco from Baker Donaldson here in Nashville about U.S.-China relations, uh, economics, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the impact on Tennessee. This is Global Nashville with Carl Dean from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at tnwac. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. Welcome back to the Global Nashville podcast with uh, Carl Dean. Today we're talking with John Scanapieco from Baker Donaldson. He is a specialist on U.S.-China relations as uh, I think he said he spends six months on the road out of the year, misses a lot of Preds games, uh, but uh, he is uh, kind enough to spend some time with us today to talk about U.S.-China relations. And one uh, item that I'm, and he's going to suggest some things, uh, since this is such a complicated topic, uh, some uh, podcasts and videos and things that uh, he suggests if you want to get more information about U.S.-China relations, the trade uh, tariffs, investment, all the uh, issues of the day relative to China. One that I'll suggest 
a podcast that I heard the other day. It's called Intelligence Matters uh, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. He interviewed Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan, two of the uh, specialists in the U.S. government on U.S.-China relations. Uh, they talked about the current state of affair and about an article they wrote for Foreign Affairs on, uh, it's called Competition Without Catastrophe, How America Can Both Challenge and Coexist with China. So between the article in Foreign Affairs and the podcast uh, that they did in early October with Michael Morell on the Intelligence Matters podcast, you can get uh, some really great uh, insights into U.S.-China relations and and the uh, the landscape ahead of us. I'm going to turn it back over to uh, to Carl Dean and uh, continue with the conversation with our guest today, John Scanapieco. We've been talking about tariffs, and another issue you, you often hear about with China, and I think you've mentioned today, is intellectual property. What what's the what's the issue there? So there are two issues uh, for the most part. One would be uh, intellectual property theft, and I think you hear that a lot. And then you also hear about uh, the forced uh, transfer of technology. And so I'll start with the first. So the inter- intellectual property theft, as I mentioned, China is under resourced, and it really needs to make goods that it can sell abroad. Um, and due to the fact that they've taken about 600 to 700 million people out of poverty, you've got now this, this, these rising costs in China. So it used to be economically possible or feasible to make low-end stuff, socks, T-shirts, and all the rest. Unfortunately, because of these rising costs, that has migrated to Vietnam, Thailand, and other places, and China needs to move up that advanced manufacturing food chain, much like we did and have done in the United States. Unfortunately, they don't have the 50 or 60 years that we had to develop their own technology. Um, if they wait that long, there's likely to be a, another revolution and another ruling you know, group. Um, and so to deal with that issue, Chinese companies, it's all part of China national policy, is to go out and acquire this technology. They either want to buy it through maybe an acquisition, or they will license that technology. Failing those things, then they'll steal it. And um, I think, you know, if you look at what the United States is doing now with uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., which is a group that reviews these types of transactions uh, for national security issues, they really have restricted now the ability of Chinese companies to acquire technology. They've restricted the ability of China to license this technology. And so as a result, I think what we, where we find ourselves is that there is a lot of uh, theft uh, that, 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 that goes on. Um, again, not saying it's right or wrong. Uh, it's just this is why it is occurring, uh, because they need the technology to advance their economy. Then the other side is the forced uh, transfer of technology. So if I'm a U.S. company, for example, going into China, long ago it was, it was required that I partner with a Chinese uh, joint venture partner form a joint venture, and through that company, I would then contribute my technology. Well, the Chinese joint venture partner would learn then uh, all the tricks of my trade, right? And then a lot of times they would go out and give it to maybe one of their sister companies, or they would just take it and, and set up their own. 
and it would be you have to you would force then that transfer of that technology from me the U.S. company to this joint venture company, then the Chinese would get access to it. Or what you'll have is um, now, well, you're not so required still to do joint ventures at the local level. The local uh, bureaucrats will still require this transfer to others, and it could be through a joint venture or through some other uh, other kind of combination. And as a result. Again, you have this loss of technology that goes into China, and then the Chinese take it and then just use it for their own purposes without, say, paying a royalty or, or anything like that. And you've seen that a lot in um, uh, a lot of different areas. But I mean, you see this over time. I mean, the United States did this to the to Europe back in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I think you'll see examples of this, Japan and the U.S. after World War II, uh, maybe even Korea. And then now you're seeing it, you know, obviously with China. So, I mean, these this is not a unique event or occurrence. It's just now we're talking at such a scale um, and the technology that we're talking about is what I call foundational technology. So it's the technology that we believe will really keep the United States, you know, uh, its, its, its role as number one in a lot of these fields for the next 40, 50, 60 years or more. And so it's become now this economic issue where if this technology goes to someplace else, um, that maybe we lose that 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 place and it's that place that allows us uh, to then be to be able to exert our laws extraterritorially and really influence a lot of things around the world. Well, all these different economic and trade issues that are um, going on now between the United States and China, whether it's um, the te- technology transfer or currency issues, um, tariffs. Um, uh, what's your sense of these things going to get worked out? You know, uh, I, I think if you look at it, the big, the five big issues that this administration seems to talk about: market access, uh, the trade deficit, the IP issues, um, state-owned enterprises, and their kind of pr- their role within the Chinese economy, as well as the currency issues. So those five issues, the easiest ones to resolve that I think have somewhat been resolved. If you believe we have a a, a phase one of a of a deal, it's market access and um, the buying of more U.S. products. I think it's uh, 40 to 50 mil, uh, billion, excuse me, uh, agricultural products, and then more market access for U.S. companies. Well, those are easy. I think I think you could you China would have agreed to that long ago. The difficult issues are going to be the intellectual property, the state-owned enterprise, and the currency issues because this iteration of the Chinese government, President Xi believes that through party control of the economy and all aspects of life, that's how China will achieve its greatness. And so if you think about it, if I tell China, require China to cede control through not using or relying on state-owned enterprises, right? They lose that sense of control because now it's private enterprise where they have less control. The same thing with uh, intellectual property. They need that intellectual property in order to keep the wheels turning to produce widgets that you know, maintain their flows of foreign currency into the country that they can then use to buy their resources. And the same thing with the currency. They can use that uh, ability to um, uh, a monetary policy like that to then help either facilitate export sales, right, that they need. And so by taking all that away, 
that really goes to the core of what this government in China really believes is their necessary tools to their sovereignty and all the rest to, again, to keep it all going. And so I just think in terms of getting the deal that the U.S. has articulated it wants, I just don't think that's really possible uh, with China uh, because I don't think China can ever really agree to it unless there's a whole change, a wholesale change in the leadership. And if this, if the trade wars continue or we were unable to resolve these issues, what do we stand to lose in the U.S. and specifically Tennessee? You know, it's it's really interesting. I think what you're seeing is, and I, I saw this from the beginning, it's more of a total decoupling with China. So the U.S. and China decoupling to the point where, again, if, if, if we deprive China its biggest market, uh, will it be able to generate enough reserves, foreign reserves, to keep that economy going? And if they can't, then that's the U.S. then will be able to maintain its primacy economically vis-a-vis the rest of the world. So I see it as this decoupling going on. But that, but, at the, but at the same time, we're de- denying ourselves the exactly and, I, the and I, I yes exactly and I think that's where this administration and others maybe have they just don't either they don't fully appreciate it or they understand it but they believe from a geopolitical perspective it's better to take that hit. Uh, they want to, somebody to take one for the team. To take one for the team. That's right. That's like my patriotic duty, you know what I mean, to maybe pay more or not have access to something. But if you think about it, in this global economy that we find ourselves, this interconnected global economy, as I mentioned earlier, you know, about half of the Chinese imports have uh, U.S. inputs in them. So by depri- by keeping Chinese products out, you're actually depriving U.S. workers of the ability to make parts and pieces and other things that go in that we sell to China that come back to us. And so that's where I think you'll see, uh, I think you're already seeing it in this this slowdown in the United States. Um, you're, you're hearing about layoffs. You're hearing, I mean, farm bankruptcies are up. Uh, China was one of our biggest export markets for agricultural products. And that's not just soybeans. That's really anything, uh, beef, uh, pork, poultry, soybeans, cotton, uh, wood products. I mean, all these products. It really has impacted the U.S. economy. So this is just a, a, a victim of the uh, dreaded G word, globalization, in which all these pieces fit together and and now we're trying to re-wrench the system. Yeah, because, I mean, if you really think about it, you know, a lot of what you hear, and this is not just a Republican thing, it's a Democrat and Republican thing, it's almost as if they, we, they, they, they don't fully appreciate how we got to this point, meaning after World War II, the world was either, you know, an economy in a specific country was either totally destroyed by the war or it was a what I would call a developing, maybe we use the word third world country, meaning it hadn't really risen up yet. And so really, the only economic power that was around was the U.S. And so from probably 1947 until the early 70s, we were like the only game in town. We rebuilt Europe. And these other countries that now are our competitors really were had, again, really basic industry that uh, now has, you know, it's developed. And so we have so much more competition now in the world. And as a result, our companies here don't just make and, and consume here in the United States. We go all over the world looking for the best, uh, cheapest, whatever your you know right. criteria are. And so when you impact these things in these different countries, it really does throw that global supply chain out of whack. And it's 
it's caused some real harm here in the United States. Is it fair to say we've moved from much more of a free market-based international economy to now where walls are going up and protections going up, and that's going to create dislocations And as we move away from the yes. free so, trade? Yes. And that's not just the United States. That's I everywhere. Mean, it's yeah. everywhere. You're seeing it in Europe. You're seeing it in, in Brazil. I mean, look at Japan and Korea over a, a reparation issue, uh, you know, uh, Korea had ruled, a, a judge ruled that, uh, you know, there still was some compensation that needed to be paid. Japan said, hey, I already resolved it. And now they're, in a, they're using trade as their tool to deal with that issue. Um, and again, I think a lot of people take, take their lead from the United States. And I think the bigger issue we have is what this U.S.-China trade war has done you can see it now where we are incentivizing the rest of the world to decouple from us. And that, I think, is the, is the issue that really is not getting very much attention. If you look at it, as we talked about earlier, TPP, I honestly believe the, the, the powers that be that made that decision figured that without the U.S. it would not go forward. Well, the rest of the folks went forward. Uh, Japan, uh, sorry, Germany, France, and the UK have created an alternative marketplace for companies to do business uh, to avoid potentially uh, U.S. secondary sanctions that we have on Iran by us withdrawing from the Iran uh, uh, nuclear deal. Um, you've got now the EU doing trade deals with all the rest of the world. I mean, things that are happening without us. We used to be the leader in a lot of these places, but now the rest of the world has figured out, well, maybe we don't need these people or that they're not reliable uh, trade partners. They're not reliable partners. And I think that potentially is more harm than any of these other issues. But you're seeing it now with retaliatory tariffs and, and all the rest. Okay. And, let's, and sort of wrapping up, um, can you just do you have some statistics on what Chinese trade means to Tennessee? Yes. So Chinese trade to Tennessee, it's actually uh, from a – they are our third largest export market. Um, China is the largest exporter to Tennessee, and so actually they account for 31 percent of all imports uh, into the state come from uh, China. If you look at it from uh, foreign direct investment, so, you know, uh, capital investment here in the state and job creation, over the last four years, uh, China is our fifth largest investor, and they have created over 2,150 jobs and approximately $341 million of capital investment over the time period, you know, the overall time, I guess, they've been keeping these statistics, uh, China has uh, created about 4,100 uh, jobs, and they've invested $645.6 million in the state, and there are right now 29 Chinese invested businesses uh, in, in the state. So, you know, again, if you look at, so like, Japan is in the you know, it's in the billions and, and, and uh, you know, 50,000, 60,000 jobs. It's not as large as Japan, but that number, though, has been increasing over time. And I believe if we can ever get these issues resolved that um, we'll see more Chinese investment here in the state. And this doesn't even account for all the lost agricultural exports, obviously, um, uh, that just are not going to China. Pork, especially, especially right now with the avi uh, the swine flu that has decimated the Chinese uh, uh, pig population, 
Tennessee exporters would 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 gladly you know fill that fill that void, but because of the retaliatory tariffs on the other side, it's cost prohibitive. So so this is an issue that is global, national, and local for us. Um, and uh, really, thank you for uh, your insights, and thank you for uh, taking the time to, to be here today. Pat, do you have anything to... Just one last uh, question, John. Uh, you you uh, mentioned some podcasts and other uh, recommended uh, viewing. I know uh, CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International studies in Washington, one of the think tanks up there does a lot of... Yeah, they have a lot of webcasts that deal with what I'll call global issues, uh, a lot of trade-related issues. And the the benefit of going to their website is, A, they live webcast a lot of their programs, so you can watch it live, but they also archive these programs. And I I don't know how long they're archived for, but I I think for a a pretty good while. So if, if you're interested in really a whole lot of global issues... It's a great place to go and, you know, listen to a, a webcast. And then on China specifically, I, I really like China Econ Talk. Um, it's uh, uh, hosted by – we're not hosted by, but it's run by one of our own locals, uh, Jeremy uh, Goldcorn. Uh, his, his group uh, does that. I think that's great. And if you're interested in trade in general, there's the Trade Guys they have a podcast that usually comes out weekly, but depending on what's going on, it may come out a little bit more than that. And then there's also uh, Trade Talks that is also a very good uh, uh, trade-related uh, podcast. And I say they're good because they're um, the way they talk about trade issues is for you know the, the layperson. I think anyone can really understand what they're talking about. It's not just all these statistics and, and studies and, and all the rest. They really get into the matters, and they really talk about what's going on, and they have some really good guests. So I think it's, it's really good. And we have also— uh, Oh, the li- Tennessee—yeah, the Tennessee-China uh, network, network uh, here. Uh, they have some excellent programs. I would go to their website, too. Uh, they'll have programs all over the state of Tennessee, and they have many here in uh, the Nashville area uh, that are focused on uh, Chinese cultural issues as well as uh, business issues. Well, well, we'll certainly put all of that information on the podcast notes on our page on soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. Uh, John Scanapieco, thanks so much for coming in today and talking with us about U.S.-China uh, relations, especially in the economic sphere uh, so much going on there in the news every day, and sometimes it's helpful to have somebody to uh, decipher all of those, uh, all the jargon and all the all the background and context. Uh, Carl, I think uh, we've uh, succeeded in helping people understand a little, little more about what's going on with the uh, trade war and the, the tariffs and, and uh, what it means to Tennessee. I hope so. It's a serious issue, and as I say, it uh, affects us here and, and then all over the country and then the whole world, actually, so... Well, thank you all for listening today. This is the uh, Global Nashville with Carl Dean podcast brought to you by the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan with uh, Carl Dean and John Scanapieco uh, wishing you well. Take a look at our website, tnwac.org, for more of our podcast information on becoming a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council and how you can make a gift to keep this nonprofit going. Thank you so much, and we'll be back uh, with another episode of Global Nashville with Carl Deans very soon. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, 
technical advisor, Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee, as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.